The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. God's Word now to Philippians 3, 1 through 7. I'm going to read, but uh, we'll look closely this morning at uh, uh, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll pick it back up uh, next week. But we're going to continue as we've been doing verse by verse through this book and the series that we're calling Durable. Uh, as we look to have a durable faith in these uh, crazy times. And I pray that over the last several months, as we've gone through Philippians, that passage after passage has been like another building block in your faith, keeping you sturdy in Christ. My prayer for you that uh, uh, after passage after passage, it's been like another nutritious meal, keeping your soul satisfied in Christ. Where like the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8, where he says that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And I pray that uh, passage after passage in Philippians and today will be no different, but that it has grown you more and more in your worship of the Lord. That as your understanding of who he is and what he's done and what he's promised to do, that that has led you to leave behind sin, to leave behind suffering, to leave behind selfish ambition and lean into a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to lean into a life of worship. A life of, of, of worship, which is really where we find ourselves in Philippians. You'll see it as we read it here in a bit. But uh, before we get there, let me just kind of set the table here for us and to remind us or to put before you, if you're new to redemption, when we talk about worship, what is it that we mean? For we talk about it quite a bit here uh, as a church, don't we? Which we're Christians, we're a church, so we should probably talk about worship because it's kind of the thing that we do, Right? It's a part of our uh, pillars. It's one of those four. We uh, here at Redemption, we hold to the unapologetic proclamation of the Word of God and unceasing prayer and uh, unafraid witness as we share the gospel and a fourth one there of unashamed worship. And so we seek to uh, lift high the name of Christ in what we do here and all the time, that we would worship God in spirit and in truth just as He's commanded us to do. And so what is worship? Worship is simply defined as ascribing worth or value, to say something is weighty or authoritative, to say that something means something. And so when we say uh, we are going to worship, we mean more than just singing, don't we? Although singing is a part of our worship, right? But when we worship, worship is not merely singing, it is much more. What we are doing now is a part of our worship as we come to the Lord with our Bibles open. This is an act of worship, no less than what we were doing five minutes ago as we open our Bibles and we believe that these words are worth more than any other words ever spoken or ever written in the history of humanity. We're worshiping now as our Bibles are open. The words contained in your book are the greatest authority in my life. We worship with our Bibles open as we come this morning expectant expecting that God has something to say to us, that He has something to reveal, sin to expose, conviction to bring, comfort to bring, encouragement to bring, a truth to bring to our understanding. We come and worship with our Bibles open. Why? Because worship is more than just singing. But is worship also more than just the hour or 75 minutes or so that we gather on a Sunday? 
Yes, yes, you can nod your head. Yes, it is. Absolutely, it's more than what we do uh, on just the Sunday. Now it's right for us to begin our week this way. It is right and good, and God has prescribed us uh, to begin our week before we do anything else, before we set our hands to any work or any responsibilities. On the first morning of the uh, very first day of the week, we begin corporately gathering with God's people to ascribe to Him the glory due His name. But it's while we start here, it doesn't end here uh, in another hour or so, does it? See, we worship all throughout the week. We worship in our thoughts as Christ comes to mind, as the Word of God is is stirring around, as we are chewing on it in our minds. We worship with our affections as we choose to uh, delight in the Lord, as we delight in His commands and who He is and what He's done and what He's called us to do. We worship all throughout the week in our actions. So we decide to live a life that God has called us to do, living differently than today is best. And so just as we begin, here's just a question. Can we worship God in our sleeping then? Some of you are a little sleepy. I know it's Sunday. You just woke up. You're trying to think. Can we worship God in the way that we sleep? Absolutely. And so just as a little commercial break, you worship God in, in how you sleep even. As uh, you go to bed and as an expression of saying, God, I have done what I'm supposed to do today, but it's all in your hands. As you trust to the sovereignty of God by just getting sleep and stopping, ceasing activity for a season, saying, God, would you watch over me? Would you protect me? Would you be at work even while I am asleep? Some of us just need to go to sleep because we're up playing all the time. We just need to go to bed so the next morning we're not as tired and uh, playing and all that. We can worship the Lord. All right, that's the, do we worship the Lord all throughout the week? Yes, absolutely we do, church. So then it's no surprise as we come to the book of Philippians that right here in the middle, right as he's teaching us how to live lives worthy of the gospel, right here at the center of this book, following the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, as we come and in, 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 in with this understanding that the world needs more gospel people, more messengers and ministers of Christ, taking the gospel with them and living lives of worship, we come, and here's really the premise this morning. It's that gospel people, worship. Gospel people worship. In the flow of thought here in, uh, in the book of Philippians, as we've uh, been shown the way to live as gospel people, definitive of who we are, as people who follow Christ, we are worshipers. And so let's get to the text now. I should read it here, and we can lean in and learn how we are worshipers. Look at your Bibles. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1, says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is God's word for God's people. These are some powerful words, aren't they, church? These are some powerful worlds that really teach us how we are to worship, how to be gospel people who worship. And that last verse that I read, verse 7, which we'll really come back to next week, but it is definitive of our worship, of gaining Christ, 
of losing everything else. But let's go back. Let's start in verse 1 and let's follow the current then of the verses. I've submitted to you that gospel people worship. Well, how then do we worship? Gospel people worship, here's point number one, with enduring joy. With enduring joy. Church, do you have joy this morning? Yeah? There's some murmurs, some mumbles. You have joy this morning? Yes! Hey, there we go. Somebody does there. Let me just remind you, as the Apostle Paul reminds us here in verse 1, to choose joy today. To choose joy. The verse begins with this word, finally. It's almost like he's like at his final point here, but we've got a couple more chapters, so it's not his last point. He has much more to say. It really carries the sense of so then, flowing from back in chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he teaches us then how to live worthy, and he gives us some examples of how to live in Timothy and Epaphroditus, and even in himself as the Apostle Paul writes this. But he then comes in and he says, finally now, As gospel people here live this way, live with an enduring joy. And so the verse is a link and it's a reminder highlighting once again for us this theme that is repeated over and over and over in this book, the theme of joy or rejoicing, of being glad that runs all throughout it. And this time our joy is hitched to someone specific, right? Unlike the other places, what does it say? To rejoice in the Lord. Very good. That was like a tee-up, you know, to fill in the blank. In the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord. See, our our joy must be hitched to the Lord. Whereas uh, throughout the uh, first few chapters, as we saw, we were to hitch our joy to the gospel, right? Not to our circumstances. We're to hitch our joy to the gospel and to the sovereignty of God, to the character of God. And now he's just very specifically doing this. It's simply this, to be satisfied in Christ. If you're taking notes, write that down. But when we speak of joy, it's to be satisfied in our heart and our minds and our actions in Christ, who He is, what He's done, what He has called us to do. But we've also had a little bit of a longer definition, haven't we? If you're new with us, this may be new. If you've been with us week after week through this book, then let me remind you what joy is again. Joy is, here's a longer definition, choosing to be impacted by the character of God instead of our circumstances. Joy is choosing to be impacted by who God said he is, what he, uh, what he has shown himself to be, sovereign and good, merciful and gracious, choosing to be impacted by the character of God instead of what's happening in my life both the good and the bad, and maybe even the ugly. And we need this constant reminder, don't we? We need this constant week after week reminder to choose joy. If we're going to have a durable faith, if we're going to make it through the end, if we're going to endure through uh, the pandemic and all the craziness happening in our day and age, then we need joy. See, joy thieves are everywhere, aren't they? Joy thieves, they, they lurk and are just ready to sabotage us. There's joy thieves that were all over the place this morning from the time you woke up until you walked into uh, this building here. There were those things both inside you and around We complain. It's so easy to fight and dispute and to quarrel and it longs to steal our joy. Within us, we, uh, the, the thieves of, of fear and control and anger and despair of sin and, and, and doubt and anxiety lurk in their seeking to steal your joy. 
And if we're not careful, if we're not reminded, if we're not fixing our gaze on Christ, it will succeed in stealing it from us. For it exists within us. These thieves are within us, but they're also outside of us. You know, know one of the places that steals my joy, one of the worst zones around me, is that construction zone right out there at 306 and uh, 35. Every morning as I drive to church, you know, and right when everybody else is seeming to go to work or wherever, it is just one of those places that wants to, if, if I'm not careful, if my mind isn't fixed on Christ, man, it will steal my joy that day. But the weather we, it wants to steal our, our, our joy, the attitudes, the bad attitudes of people around us, any circumstance, there's all kinds of things around us that you've identified that you know in your own life that we have to fight and battle for joy in the Lord. And so we need these constant reminders, don't we? We need these reminders from the, from the word and from one another to choose joy. And so I love how Paul says it here. Just look at verse 1 again. He says, to rejoice in the Lord, to write these same things to you. Like he knows, like, yeah, I've been pretty repetitious in these first few chapters. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me. He's like a Chick-fil-A employee. He's like, it's my pleasure to remind you to be joyful. But it is also safe. It is safe for you, contrasted with the risk of the previous passage, the risk that Epaphroditus went out to, with the gospel. And so now he's saying, this is, this is safe. This is good counsel. It is good for me, right and safe and secure, for me to remind you to choose joy. And so we've, we, 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 we're always counseling one another, aren't we? Like the, we, we are constantly involved in one another's life and talking uh, through things and bearing one another's burdens and seeking to encourage and to help and to love one another. Church, let me just tell you, the best biblical counsel we can give to one another is to choose joy. With grace and mercy as we speak it, not just like as a, as a, uh, as a baseball bat upside the head, but rather always be our great pleasure and also as very safe counsel as we seek to point one another back to Christ. And so we've, we've talked much about this throughout this letter of how it is part of our discipleship and also part, how joy is a part of our witness, how it, how it sets us apart from the prevailing attitudes, what is normal in our culture, that to be a people of joy and not complaining, not grumbling, not, not fighting, not disputing, not causing division and discord, but as believers who are called to be joyful, this is a part of our light in a dark world, pointing people back to Christ and setting us apart. And so our joy is a part of our discipleship with one another. It's a part of our witness, but don't miss this here this morning. It is also a part of the attitude of our worship. If you've read through the Psalms lately, you see this over and over again. What are we told to do? To rejoice in the Lord, to be glad in the Lord. We're told to, that our attitude as we come before the Lord, as we seek Him, is, is a joyful responsiveness. Our submission to Christ is a joyful responsiveness to who He is, to what He's done and what He has promised to do and what He's called us to do. It's that attitude in our heart as, a, as we know the right thing to do, as we know what it is to follow Christ. It is that attitude that says, God, I know this is hard, but I'm going to trust you with joy. Not just merely going through the motions, but I want to trust you with joy. It's the mindset of, you know what, it might, I might not be able to see all the way down the road. I might not be able to see how this is going to play out in my entire life, but I am going to follow you in this next step. I will joyfully follow your way. And it's at this heart level. 
at this internal level here that our worship becomes genuine and not just mere duty or obligation to following the Lord's commands. But we want to be a people with enduring joy in every season. A gospel people that are pointing people back, oh, other believers, other unbelievers, and even in our own heart. And so our prayers each morning, as we are coming before the Lord, our prayers each morning should include requests for joy. God, would you make me uh, joyful today? Would the, the joy of, of being known by you this morning, would it give me strength? Include this in your prayer life. Uh, include joy in your counsel. Join Christ. So church, our invitation to unbelievers should also include a vision for joy in Jesus Christ. As you are sharing your faith, as you are talking about your, your, your trust in the Lord, you should include like, hey, if you want to have the type of joy I have, if you're tired of banging your head against the wall and trying to do things on your own, of living a life of, of despair or wherever you might be, let your invitation to the gospel be an invitation for joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Parents, let your discipleship of your kids include uh, instruction in cheerful obedience. Knowing that, the, that by following with a joyful, cheerful heart will set them up for success in, uh, in life and be uh, building up uh, little worshipers, influencing them to live a life that is full of joy in the Lord. See our discipleship, our witness, and especially our wor wor worship, rather, Joy is always a part of that equation. See, gospel people, the type of people that the world needs are gospel people who worship with enduring joy. But the passage takes a little bit of a turn in verse 2. Did you notice that as I was reading it? It, it takes a bit of a turn. There's like this great uh, uh, exhortation to joy, but see, gospel people also worship with discerning caution. They worship with a discerning caution. Lest we think here uh, from verse 1 that, uh, you know, worship is uh, just all like fluffy and naive, that we're just called to be joyful and not worry about what's going on around us. In verse 2, Paul's tone drastically changes. It's, it's startling, actually, like a bullhorn in a quiet room. It's as if we're like driving along and someone like jumps out and shouts, Look out! And not just once, but how many times does he say, Look out, in verse 2? Did you notice that? Not once, not twice, but three times. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These three enemies of genuine worship, enemies of enduring joy. And these are harsh names, y'all. These, these names are directed at the Judaizers of the day, those that claim to follow Christ, but were adding Old Testament law to the faith, saying that you can't be saved unless you are circumcised. You can't claim to follow Christ unless you have uh, gone through basically everybody else who's not Jewish, and they thought this way. See, dogs is a, is a derogatory term. Don't, when you read this, don't think of like the nice, cute uh, dog you have at home. Yeah, like my cubby, she's cute, she's nice, um, she's got a ton of energy, but it's not her or your dog. To think of a dog in their day were, were not the domesticated nice dogs. They were the dirty, diseased street scavengers roving around, ravaging things. They were not the nice animals that we love. And so to call somebody this was, was pretty derogatory. To be called an evildoer, that's 
it doesn't take much explanation, does it? It's the wicked, those bent on harming oh, other people, those bent on uh, hating God. Mutilators here, uh, indicative of those of who would harm their body, would, would cut off pieces of their body in some sort of sacrificial uh, pagan uh, religion. And so, like I said, Paul, he reverses these things. He says, no, actually, y'all, you Judaizers are these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators. Why? Because they have added to the gospel. They have obscured the way of salvation. They have said that Jesus' work on the cross was not enough to save you, that you must add something. And church, let me with the same tone warn you that Jesus plus works or anything else makes a shipwreck of it all. See, they think they're children of God, but actually they're just mutilators of the flesh. Danger. If you are trusting in your baptism to save you, if you're looking back to say, well, I was, I was baptized, I was immersed, or I was sprinkled as a baby in this ritual thing. If, if you are adding or thinking, well, I give a lot to the church, I come every week. Or if you're a child and think, well, my parents were saved, they lived a life and they brought me to church. If you're uh, trusting in all the nice things that you do for your neighbors or your wife and your kids, and you're thinking that that is what is enough to save you, you are wrong. You're trusting in the wrong actions to save you. For there is one man's actions that can save you. The Lord Jesus Christ. His life on this earth, his perfect obedience, living the life that you and I could not live. And it was his death, his substitutionary death, dying in our place that saves us. And it is by faith in Christ alone by which we are saved. There is nothing else that we bring to the table. We, we add only our sin to the equation. It is the only thing that makes us worthy to be saved. It is just our sin. We help in no other way. Why? Because apart from Christ, we are dead. Dead men can't do anything. We are dead in Christ. But until the Spirit opens our eyes, right? Until the Spirit awakens us, we can't do anything. Maybe this morning the Spirit is opening your eyes. You're realizing that you've been trusting in something. You've been thinking, well, I was baptized as a kid. I'm doing this. I come to church. I'm faithful. I'm not cheating on anybody. I'm, I'm trying to live a moral life. Surely God will save me. Let me just tell you, brother and sister, look out for all of those excuses, for all of those uh, 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 actions that we think are in our own hands to save us. For it is in Christ and Christ alone. If the Spirit is opening your eyes to see this, then repent and believe. Repent of all the trying to do it on your own, of trying to earn favor with God and embrace Christ. Embrace the way, the free gift of salvation. And to all of us, we must look out Look out, the call is to examine our hearts personally, but also to look out for any who would add to the gospel. You're like, yeah, praise God, because I, I am aware of my life and there's nothing that I could have done. Let us also, with equal fervor, with equal discerning caution, watch out for any who would teach a gospel contrary to what we're seeing here in the scriptures. Watch out for those who preach Jesus plus something. That preaching something, that you must add to something. You must use discernment with those guys that are on TV, that are especially on YouTube. 
Church, can I just caution you? Can I with the same tone here to say, look out for YouTube. It is an unaccountable uh, cesspool of video and information. Anybody without any accountability can post on there. And so this morning, use caution, use discernment about who you are listening to. It doesn't matter if the video has millions of views. It doesn't matter if they are compelling communicators, if they are somehow uh, able to untangle some like Old Testament prophet that you can't pronounce or know nothing about. It doesn't matter if they have a ministry named after them. Look out, look out with discernment, with caution, so that they do not sabotage your faith. Now, I'm not saying everybody on YouTube is bad. Don't hear me saying that. We have messages on YouTube, okay? I'm also not saying that everything that we uh, hear doesn't mean we're to be like these perpetually skeptical, these like sinfully critical people with like a stank eye, everything that we hear, right? Ready to uh, looking out for every small potential error and, and quick to, uh, to, to label others as heretics. But if these verses teach us anything, this morning, as we want to grow in our worship, as we want to grow in our understanding of the truth. If Paul's harsh words here teach us anything, it's this, that not everything that calls itself Christian is. And not everybody who teaches the Bible is actually a Bible teacher. And when it hits home is that we must be growing in the truth if we want to be increasing in our worship. See, why would he include a, a, a caution here in a passage where he is teaching us about worship? Well, truth is what drives our worship. Knowing who God is, what he's done, the truth of, of the character of God is what leads us to greater, to be seen as correct or the know-it-all uh, Bible scholar. We're seeking to know the truth, to be discerning. Why? So that our worship is more fervent to the Lord that we would be more genuine worshipers, growing in truth and increasing in ascribing to the Lord the glory due His name. And then that is what we uh, worship with. That is what we witness with. That is what we disciple with. And so even as we learn what to watch out for, we're to worship with joy and we're to worship with, uh, with caution here. The next verse really counters with three traits then to define true worship. He's saying, look out for these three guys, but here's really what true worship is. And so we're going to today look at two of them. And so gospel people here, we worship. Gospel people worship with joy and with caution, but here's the third one. We worship by the Spirit. Gospel people worship by the Spirit. Now, verse 3 begins a little bit odd, doesn't it? An odd description. In contrast, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And this is contrasted with the mutilators of the end of verse 2, right? Those who are cutting off skin for no reason. And so what's he doing here? What's Paul teaching us? As gospel people, he's bringing us back to the heart of worship, the why behind the what and how we worship. And so to understand what he's referring to here, really, we need to understand our Old Testament. We need to understand the Old Testament ritual of circumcision, and we need to go back to the first book into the Bible, into Genesis, where it all began, and specifically in Genesis 17. And so uh, as God uh, made himself known to Abraham and set them apart as his people, he uh, established a covenant, an unconditional covenant with them, a, a covenant that involved a land, a multitude of offspring, and being a blessing to the people uh, around them, that he, God would bless those who bless his people and curse those who curse his people. And as a sign of the covenant... 
a symbol in the most intimate of places, he gave them this, this sign of circumcision that set them apart from all other nations. In the most intimate of places, they were different. In the same way that their outward obedience, their actions uh, later as the Mosaic law came, that set them apart from life of all the other nations. How they lived, how they dressed, how they spoke, what they ate, how they worshipped, where they lived, what they did, the things that they celebrated throughout they obeyed with faith. They trusted in the Lord and who had revealed himself to be. This was a true sign of the covenant, and they, by faith, were following the Lord. Others just did it out of ritual. Others just did it out of obligation. It was merely ritualistic, and to them, they were just mutilators. They weren't of the circumcision. And so now he's saying, but we are. We are of genuine faith, those who worship distinctly by these things here. And so what is it here? What is it now that Christ has come and he has fulfilled the law? What is it that sets the people of God apart? What or rather whom do we have as God's people that sets us apart from the rest of humanity? More specifically, the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is Christ whom we worship. It is Christ who is our head. Yes, but we worship. Why our worship? We are different because we have God himself dwelling in us. The Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ here. We worship or we serve by the Spirit of God. And this is what sets us apart. This is what gives us our moral compass, who brings to mind the Word of God, who teaches us what is right and wrong, convicts us of sin, encourages us when we're down, who teaches us what is true, enables us to understand the Word of God. Consider what Paul told the Romans in Romans 8, 9 through 11. I'll just read it here as we think in this same vein here. He says, You, however, are a spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does, or the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's Romans 8, 9 through 11. Church, have you trusted Christ? Are you saved this morning? If you are, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. If not, then He does not. He does not dwell in you. The Spirit of God is at work in us. He is the guarantee of our salvation, that we know we are saved, that we are secure in Christ. He is the one that brings the truth to our mind. He is the one that uh, brings uh, uh, faith to us. He is the one that uh, teaches us what is true and right and, and, and teaches us that we are loved and that we are children of God, sons and daughters of the King. It is the Spirit in, uh, of God in us that is the worker of our salvation so that we are growing, so that we are increasing in our saying no to sin and yes to the things of God. He is the worker of our sanctification and also the cultivator of our worship so that we show that we are children of God, bringing it to our mind and stirring up our affections and leading us as we seek to live out the gospel, as we seek to live out for the Lord. See, we worship by the Spirit of God as He brings to our heart and mind in the moment the ability to weigh what is right, what is true, what is not. He brings to our mind what is worthy, what is excellent, what is, what is the will of God in the moment. See, this is the work of God. 
by the Spirit of God. We are gospel people who worship full of the Spirit. See, apart from the Spirit, we can't truly worship. We're still dead in our sin. But with the Spirit, in the Spirit, then we are true worshipers. Just as John 4, 24 says, as I've quoted here, God is Spirit and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and in truth. And so with the truth before us, the Spirit then energizes our expression. It makes our worship come alive as the truth is before us, as what is right is before shines the spotlight on Jesus which is ultimately where the passage takes us, right? He says, we worship then, look at verse three again. We are the circumcision we, who worship by the spirit of God and what? And glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, here's the fourth point. Gospel people worship by boasting in Christ. By boasting in Christ. See, church, the focal point, the object, the person whom we worship is Jesus. Sunday after Sunday, we lift high Christ. We sing to Him. We pray through Him. We give for Him. We learn about Him and we serve Him. Sunday after Sunday, we exalt Him. We extol Him. We praise Him. We thank Him. We adore Him. We love Him and we bless Him. Christ is the center of this church. Christ is the foundation of this church upon which everything has been built. Christ is the main attraction. The one whom I pray you have entered through these doors and come here because you're seeking out Christ. Christ is the head of this church and he is the headliner of this service. He is the reason why we are here. Always has, always will be. This isn't about me. This church isn't about you. It's not about the band. It's not about our kids. It's not about the coffee. It's not about the comfy chairs that you're sitting in or the music that is played here. See, Redemption Bible Church exists for Christ and Christ alone. Always has, always will. And so our boast will always be in Jesus. Who he is, what he's doing, and what he has promised to do. By the Spirit's help, we will never waver from that. The grace that He has shown us, we will never waver from that. But here's really where this hits home. Here's where where the rubber meets the road. With the same resolve, with the same fervor that I have just expressed for our church, let it be so with your life. Let it be so with your life. See, gospel people boast in Jesus. And so while I express that collectively for us as the body of Christ here at Redemption, the same is true for you as gospel people. The focal point, the object, the person whom you worship is Jesus. Day after day with your life, lift high Christ. Sing to Him. Pray to Him. Christ is the center of your life, the one whom everything in your life, your schedule, and everything revolves around Him. But Christ is also the foundation upon which everything else in your life is built upon. Christ is the attraction of your life, the fragrant aroma that you exude to the people around you. Christ is your head, but Christ is also the headliner of your life. He is why you exist. Your life isn't about you. Your life isn't about your career, your kids, your comfort. You exist on this. And he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boasting of how holy and awesome is his his name. And if you must boast, then boast of the things that show your weakness so that Christ is made much of. It's easy to boast in how strong you are. You can flex your muscles if you have any. 
It's easy to flex of our, in, our, in our country. It's easy to flex and, and, and to boast of our accomplishments, our achievements, our kids. But true strength, true worship is boasting in Jesus Christ so that our weakness makes him look all that better. Why? So that we steal no glory from the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom all glory belongs. We put no confidence in the flesh. We'll look at this more closely next week, but we don't put any confidence in who we are, where we came from, titles, names, identities, accomplishments, achievements, or awards. We put no confidence in those things as gospel people. Gospel people who worship, we boast in one name. One name is higher. One to whom the glory belongs. The one whom is exalted over all. And so redemption, church, let us, let Christ be on your mind this week. Let Christ be in your affections. Let him be on your lips, stirring you, demonstrated through your actions with enduring joy and discerning caution, full of the Holy Spirit. Let us this week cease to make much of the headlines. Let us cease to believe everything that is posted out there. Let us empty ourselves of bitterness and anger and anxiety and all the things that entangle us. And instead choose to worship Christ with all that we have. Day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year until the Lord returns. Let us be a people who glory in Jesus Christ, the one who is exalted over all. Would you pray with me?